In 2004, more than 230,000 people were killed. 500,000 were injured. 1.7 million were left homeless on December 26th. After a 9.2 magnitude earthquake caused a tsunami that affected 14 countries in Asia, as well as Eastern and Southern Africa. The incident remains one of the deadliest natural disasters in recorded human history. The death toll could have been less had warnings been heeded. Seven years before the earthquake and subsequent tsunami, a top government official in Thailand warned that the country would at some point be hit by a tsunami. His calls were ignored, and he was termed crazy. He was banned from some parts of Thailand because they considered him to be a threat to the tourism industry. The Pacific Ocean Tsunami Warning System, after the earthquake, also warned uh, embassies and government officials of several Asian countries uh, and that they were at risk of a possible tsunami as a result of the earthquake. Those warnings were ignored. Uh, Here's another one. On January 28, 1986, the Challenger space shuttle exploded over the skies of Florida while being watched by millions of people on the ground and on live television. The explosion was caused by the formation of ice uh, around the space shuttle's O-rings, which were used to separate the rocket boosters from the shuttle. Prior to the launch, there had been warnings. Uh, This time they, they came from a guy by the name of Bob Ebeling, he was an engineer who worked for a company called Morton Thiokol. You may remember that. Uh, they were the, it was the contractor for NASA that produced the rocket boosters. Uh, he had warned that the extremely cold weather on that morning, it was about 18 degrees, uh, would prevent the O-rings from sealing properly and would cause an explosion. He and another engineer requested that the shuttle's launch be delayed until the weather was favorable. The delay was initially granted, but later dismissed by executives in NASA who were under pressure to get the shuttle into space. Uh, The launch had already been delayed by six days. One of the executives said, well, if we're waiting out the cold weather, are we going to launch in April? Uh, When Bob complained, one of the top executives at NASA told him that the Challenger was not his burden to bear. The shuttle took off against Bob's insistence only to explode in midair 73 seconds after launch. Seven astronauts, one of whom was a teacher who had, been, had won a seat uh, through a NASA, NASA education program, were killed in the accident. Warnings. Part of what we do here in, in this church is we teach through the scripture, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, warnings are important to us. We, by nature, don't like warnings. Uh, I would like to not have to heed warnings. It, 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 mainly, uh, when we do come to a place of heeding warnings, is because there's a, a consequence attached to it. Here in Hebrews is probably the most severe warning uh, to Christians in all of God's word. Uh, and, and lucky us, we happen to be at that passage this morning. So <laughs> I want to go through this. I want to tell you, though, that going in, 
This is a warning. Is it written to Christians? Yes. The book of Hebrews was written to Hebrew believers in the first century who were struggling with their faith. They had come to faith in Christ. Uh, This is some 30 years after the cross. They had come to faith in Christ and they had suffered greatly as a result. Persecution was on the rise. It was increasing and it would increase greatly after this book was written to the point where Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Romans. But the, the point is, is that the people were struggling. They had been waiting for Christ to return even then, and he hadn't. And they were discouraged and looking at the possibility, the potential of going back to what they knew, what was familiar in Judaism. And the writer's whole purpose in writing this letter was to warn them against doing that because Judaism had been essentially replaced. It had been declared obsolete. We've looked at that as we've looked in this wonderful letter. And as we've been deepening our understanding of this, uh, last week we looked at what I termed cause and effect. We, we looked at since we have uh, these things that Jesus has done these things for us, then we respond to those. Uh, and we, we looked at that um, in more depth. I'm going to cover that passage again this morning, but I'm going to cover it quickly because we looked at it in depth last week. But I want you to understand that that part of what the writer does in Hebrews is he issues a series of warnings. This is the fifth of six. It's the strongest uh, in in this book. But just to go back quickly, the first danger, remember in chapter two, he warned against drifting away. Let us pay closer heed to what we've learned lest we drift away, lest we drift from the truth and, and our lives being anchored in God, in, in God's word. Uh, the writer continually goes back to the Old Testament. He does a series of Bible studies in this book because he sees the value of God's word in ensuring that we don't get this wrong. So with that, the first danger was drifting. The second was having a hard heart, hardening up. I don't want to hear about the things of God, you know, sort of fingers in the ears and la, 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 la. I I just don't want to hear it because I'm challenged by it. Uh, We were talking in our men's group uh, the other night about uh, when people resort to different tactics to shut out the word of God and, and, and. One of those is to just harden your heart. I don't, I just don't want to hear it. If I, if, and it's not, it's willful ignorance, essentially, is what the writer's talking about there. Uh, the third danger was about falling short. He uses Israel as an example when they went into the promised land. Well, they got up to Kadesh Barnea, and um, I want to be very specific on this. God sent spies into the land. <laughs> We were talking about that the other night too. Uh, and, and they came back and said, no, 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 we can't go in. There's giants in the land. We were like grasshoppers. And, and it just kind of explodes. And the, all of these people's lives are affected by that. And they fell short of what God's will was. And so we looked at that danger as well. The fourth danger we looked at was the danger of apostasy in chapter 6. It's a very similar passage to what we're going to look at here this morning. This passage is actually actually stronger than that one as far as what the writer puts forth on the dangers of walking away. So it was the danger of despising is what we're looking at today. At that time, it was the danger of apostasy. And, and, and again, that's what we're going to talk about this morning because this is not a warning to Christians who struggle with the old nature. This is a warning about walking away. This is a warning about saying, I gave my life to Christ and now I want it back. That's what he's talking about here. So I want you to understand, this is not, this has been mistaught 
many, many times down through the ages to put a trip, a, a guilt trip, to put a head trip on people as though they couldn't be secure in their relationship with Christ. That's not what this is about. It's very serious. Is The warning is to us. It is for us to be able to benefit by, for us to know that there is an edge that God sets, uh, and he says, come and play in the yard here, but there's an edge to the yard. And so I want to be specific on that. It's not to condemn. It is definitely there to, to give us instruction. So uh, it's about giving up one's faith. Now, what we're going to do as we go through this, the context actually begins in verse 19. That's where we started last week. So I'm going to move through it quickly. But first, I want to give you a statement. It's two sentences long. And it, context, you guys, uh, we are all about context. Uh, the reason is, is that uh, I love the old ditty, a, a text without a context is a con. Uh, you have to take things in context. The context of this warning is in the midst of an encouragement on the front end and on the back end. What he's doing is he's giving the people their instruction and he's saying, look, this is the line. Don't step over it. Now, I'm confident you haven't, but you need to know that it exists, that it's there. And so it's written to real Christians about real issues, and we do well to heed the warning. Now, the the statement, it goes like this. Since Jesus gave us these, we looked at that last week, uh, let us do these. Now, this may not make sense to you right now, but it will as we unpack the passage, as we move through it. I want you to understand it, and, and we'll revisit this every time we look at a section. So this, I'm going to break the rest of this chapter down into sections, and each one of these parts of the statement will apply to each section. It helps us to go through and to hold on to the context of what's being said. So since Jesus gave us these, let us do these because there is a warning. But you are better than this, and we have made our choice. All right, may not make a lot of sense to you now. Uh, The Lord willing, by the time that we're finished this morning, it will. So beginning here with since Jesus gave us these, we looked at it last week. He gave us access into a holy place, the holy place, the holiest of holies. essentially gave us access into the very presence of God. And a living advocate. In other words, he is our great high priest. We've looked at that from chapter seven on. And that, so since Jesus has given us these two things, we look at that in verses 19 through 21. He says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God. We have access to God himself, not just access to a religious system, guys. What we're talking about here is the personal relationship that we get to enjoy with Christ, with him, he himself. With He brings us into the presence of God, beyond the veil, into the holiest place. That was not the case. It has never been the case since Adam. Man was blocked from having fellowship with God because of his sin. Jesus, having gone to the cross, having taken and worn our sin, and then resurrected from the dead because his sacrifice had been accepted to the Father, he gives us access. We talked about it last week. It's not passive access. It's as though he reaches out and pulls us in. He wants a relationship with us. Remember, we talked about it's as though it's like a child in a parent's home where you. I remember going into my mom's house. I had no problem going straight to the fridge. 
And we talked about that. We talked about this is the kind of relationship that we have. It's a family type relationship. It's the kind of relationship where I and I not only have access, but I know him and he knows me and he wants a relationship and he pursues a relationship. And I respond in like because I love him and I understand his love for me. If, if I didn't, if I don't get that, if you don't get anything about him, is that he loves you to the point that he would send his son to die. Having done that, he beckons you to a relationship where he pulls you into relationship through simply coming to a place of saying, Lord, I believe it. And that settles it. And, and now as your child, I want to come in. I want to enjoy all that you have for me. That's the relationship that's offered. It's not some technical thing where we get drug in and, you know, against our will. It's, it's a wonderful, beautiful relationship that we respond to. So, since he gives us these things, and he's done it all through the body and the blood of Jesus. Remember that. When he says through the veil, his flesh. Remember when Jesus in the upper room, the night before he went to the cross, it says he took the, the bread and he tore it. He broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. In the same way that when he gave up the ghost, when he gave up his spirit on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn from the top down. We talked about it again last week. I'm not going to go into it in depth. But he's saying... That the only way to access to God, for, to have access to God is through his flesh, through his torn flesh, through his body, which was given for us. And proof that the sacrifice was effective was through his blood, because the life is in the blood. I have no hope of coming into God's presence without the blood of Jesus being on my life. Uh, again, a total fulfillment of what was prefigured and shadowed in the Old Testament with the animal sacrifices and a fulfillment that we see here in Christ. So since Jesus gives us these, he goes on here uh, and says, let us do these three things. Let's draw near, let's hold fast, and let's pull together. Again, covered those last week, but I'm going to go through it quickly because we have to keep with the context in order to understand how this warning fits. Uh, the first thing he says is to draw near, that let us draw near. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. In verse 22, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So he says, look, it's not just a drawing near in a technical legal sense. It's a drawing near to God. That way is opened. People in the Old Covenant with the Old Testament priests, with the Levitical priests, when they sacrifice an animal, they could have their sins covered, but they could never, ever draw near to God through it. There was still a veil. There was still a separator between God and man because animals couldn't atone for sin to the point of bringing people into fellowship with God. Not not like the, the fulfillment of that, again, that we see in Christ and in the blood of Christ bringing us into that place. So since he's done that, we can draw near and we can draw near with confidence. We can come into and enjoy again that relationship that he offers. The second thing that he says is hold fast. We talked about that last week. Hold fast as though somebody were trying to take it away from you. It's hang on to that. He's saying, let us hold fast to our confession of our, the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. It's essentially saying, I know what I believe. And I'm not going to waver. I am not letting go. Again, the writer to, to the Hebrew Christians of the first century were considering letting go. They were beginning to waver. They were discouraged. They were beginning to pull back. 
And he's saying, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Hold fast to what you have. Hold on to that. Hold on to it as though your life depended on it, because guess what? It does. Uh, it's, it's about being stubborn. You know, I, my daughter, uh, I, I, one thing I've really loved about my daughter, uh, my daughter Jessica, is she, when she was growing up, she was the most stubborn person I had ever met. And I was like, oh my goodness, you are just it's so stubborn. But as she grew and as she grew in her relationship with the Lord, because she loved Jesus, I would tell her, sweetheart, you're the most stubborn woman I've ever known. And yet one of the things I love about you is you're stubborn about the right stuff. And essentially what the writer's saying here is be stubborn about the right stuff. Don't let go of this. Don't have an attitude of even thinking about letting go of it, but be stubborn for the truth of the gospel. And folks, we do well to heed that advice. It's good advice. So as we hold fast, that's sort of what the picture looks like, is hold fast to that. Hold fast to the confession of our hope. That's the gospel. That's the relationship. The third thing he says is pulled together in verses 24 and 25. Uh, He says, let us consider one another in order to stir up or to stimulate. That's what that word means. Uh, Love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Uh, Covered that again, covered that last week. But in context here, since he has done these things for us, this is our response and, and to draw near, to pull together, to draw in closely, gathering with other Christians. And, and he says, you need to do this. This is not just optional. Yeah, I love thinking that, I, like when I'm looking for a church, what I have in the past, of course, I like going here as well, but uh, I'm serious. I tell people, you know, I might be the pastor, but I really like going to church here. Um, but the point is, is that, he says, don't forsake the assembling together of yourselves together with, with other believers. It's not just a fun thing to do. And there are times when it doesn't feel like, I don't feel like, I, I woke up this morning. Okay, true confession time. I rolled over. It was cold in the room. And I whispered in my wife's ear. I, I laughed and I said, I don't feel like going to church today. <laughs> and she said, I know, I don't either. But the point is, is those are the times when I need to go the most because there are things that compete, aren't there? And and when he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, these people in the first century, they were discouraged. They were stopping. They they were beginning to stop coming. They were beginning to separate off. And I'll tell you what, I always look at that as as like a fire. Let's say that you're out camping and you, you build a fire and you've got this, you keep throwing wood on there. And by the end of the evening, you're thinking, I hope the place doesn't burn down while I'm sleeping because that's a big fire. There's a lot of coals in there. And, and yet, what happens? And those coals, they'll, if you bank it right, those things, those babies will be hot in the morning. But if you take one of those coals out and you set it on the ground next to the fire pit, what happens within 10 minutes? It's dark, it's cold. It, it needs the nourishment of the rest of the coals in order to continue to sustain. That's how it is with us. That's why it's so important that we, that we avail ourselves of being in regular fellowship. We need each other. 
It's not, again, it's something that, yeah, we elect to do. But again, when I've looked at churches, when I've searched, I, it's like, Lord, where do you want me to go? Maybe I identify something that I don't see that that church is fulfilling. And, and, and there have been times where I've thought, well, maybe I don't want to go there because of this or that. And the Lord has spoken to my heart and said, well, what if I want you to be the answer to that? That's convicting. I mean, it's piercing. And, and there have been times where I've stuck it out. I remember going to a church uh, in the mid-80s. I ended up being a pastor at this church, but I wasn't going to go back after the first time I went. And, and and I was in my car getting ready to go, and a woman came running out. I can still see her in my mind's eye. She's running across the street. I was parked across the street. And she said, I just wanted to tell you that Jesus loves you. And I went, wow, maybe there's some hope for this place after all, because... That was a pretty tight bunch in there, and I just didn't feel very welcomed, and blah, blah, blah. And I, I ended up staying, and, and, and God blessed that. My point is, is that it's about where does God want us to be in fellowship and plugging in, and being that light, being that person that, that shares the love of Christ, that when they open that door, that they see that his love is, is alive and well in our midst, and that, that people are loved I've said before, you guys are real good at loving each other, and I encourage you, love that person that comes in. Because that's what's going to distinguish us as a church from some place where people can come in and just have a religious experience. Enough said on that. Oh, I love the rabbit trail, don't you? Um, all of this, the point is, that's what we covered last week, and I better hurry because we only got about 35 minutes. Um, it's building up to a warning. All of that, since he's given us these things, he's, he's laying it out, but he's going to go into this warning. And the point is, is that in all of this, is he wants to make a point here that God's not inviting you and I to a list of options. In reality, he's saying, outside of me, nothing exists but hell. And I need to be very clear on that. He is going to get into this warning now. It's a very serious, it's a very sober warning. And, and we do well to take it to heart, to understand the distinctions that he's making here as he comes out of the warning and begins to exhort these people in, in a, a, a little lighter heart. Uh, so since Jesus gives us these, let us do these, those three things we just looked at, because there is a warning. Do you see how we're working through this? I'm just taking this statement a piece at a time to address different sections in this chapter because it helps us to hold on, again, to the context, which is totally important here. Verse 26, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. So question, what is sinning willfully? What is he talking about here? Is it struggling with sin? Is it besetting sin? We, we'll talk about, and when we get into chapter 12, we'll talk about what besetting sin is. Because in the first part of chapter 12, he says, that this, he talks about the sin that so easily besets us. All right, so is it is it about that? I don't believe so. I, the context doesn't indicate that. It is not the struggles against the old nature that we all deal with, don't we? We all are in process. We None of us has arrived. We all wrestle. And it, it, if I were to teach this in a condemning way, I could say, aha, that's what he's talking about. You sin after you receive the knowledge of the truth, you're done. You're going to hell. No, that is not the God of grace. It is not what he's saying. 
However, what he is saying is to Christians, and I want to be clear on that. So he's he's talking about a decision to live outside of Christ. Apostasy is what we call it, and it's apostasy followed by a godless life. Okay, let me be clear. Again, he's talking to Christians. He's saying, if you want to go back, then you can go back, but you've got to realize that if you turn your back on Christ and you walk away, you want to go back to Judaism or some other ism, then that's tantamount to apostasy. And God takes that very, very seriously. So apostasy essentially is to have come and then turned away. That's what it means uh, to be apostate. It's saying, I don't want Jesus anymore. Uh, it's saying, I've, I've had it. I'm done. Uh, there have been a couple of instances where well-known people in the Christian world, one of them was a, a musician with Hillsong, and another guy had a ministry to uh, people that were gay uh, in just the last few months that have walked away. And they've not only walked away, they have publicly walked away and sort of advertised the fact that they're walking away, having been people who had wielded influence to others with others in the body of Christ. And the only response I have is woe to them. Woe to them. It's just not something you want to do. To allow your heart to get hardened to the point where you, you, you actively walk away. Uh, and you pull other people with you if you can. So the point of this is there's no sacrifice if you turn from the sacrifice. He's, that's what the writer's saying. He, he's writing to people that have a Jewish mindset. They understand that these sacrifices were made. He's saying, no, Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient, not only sufficient, far greater than any other human or animal sacrifice that could have taken place. And you can't just now all of a sudden decide that that sacrifice is no good. Because to turn from the sacrifice is, is tantamount to apostasy. He's saying that it's a saying that I don't need a sacrifice for my sins. And, and in the first century, that answer to, to them wouldn't be found in Judaism. In our day, it won't be found in any other, again, any other ism, any other religious system. I've shared with you guys many times, I came out of a, an ism, uh, and it was a religious system that I was trapped in until I was in my early 20s, and, and God in his grace delivered me. Open my eyes. And, and I'm so, I'm eternally grateful. I remember being interviewed for Bible college and I'd shared with this guy my history of spending 10 years looking for God and having grown up as a Mormon. And I, then I studied with Jehovah's Witnesses for a year and got right up to being baptized and went, uh, and then I went with another ism and, and that wasn't good. I, I went to seances as a teenager. I went through all this crazy stuff. And when I got interviewed to go to Bible college, the guy said, well, how, how do I know that this isn't just another thing with you? I had to drive to Southern California to get interviewed. The quarter or the semester was starting right away when the Lord called me and gave me the money and all that stuff. Uh, long story there. I'm not going to go into it. But uh, as I'm getting interviewed, the guy, he listened to me. I shared my story. And then he said, well, how do you know? How do you know that this is it? And I just simply said, you know what? When the Holy Spirit came into my heart and began to do a work on the inside, when he began to change me from the inside and he began to give me a hunger for God's word and a hunger to know Jesus more intimately, that never happened in all of the isms, all of the stuff. 
I looked at him and I said, I'm home. And I know that. The writer here is letting these people know. He's saying, you know what? You're home. Stop wiggling around trying to figure out what to do. It may not look good. It may not be good in this life. You're going to go through stuff. But there's an eternity out there that awaits. And if you turn your back, you're putting that in danger. That's his point. Verse 28, he says, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. In Deuteronomy 17, uh, we read that capital punishment, when was that was the case. If you turned away from the law of Moses, there was a death sentence that was pronounced in Judaism. And that was to animals, not the Son of God. And he's warning here, he says in verse 29, of how much worse, worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. Because apostasy insults God. Uh, let me ask you a question. Have you ever done something for someone uh, and and then they they sort of turned and insulted you as a result? I remember one time there was a huge fire. Um, we lived up in the mountains of far northern California and there's a huge fire and my wife went over. She knew that some people, a family was out of town, a family in our church. And so she went over to their ranch to make sure that the livestock wasn't in danger. And and she went over to check and make sure that the fire wasn't encroaching because she you know, was ready to take action and all. And, and, and I remember the woman just saying, uh, essentially calling her on the carpet and saying, what are you doing snooping around our house? And I was like, but no, I was doing something because I wanted to be a blessing. And, and it's like, the, the point is, is how much more with God? if we want to insult the work that he's done. And the writer's saying, don't do that. There's three things about turning away from Jesus I want to cover quickly that he talks about in this passage. The first is trampling underfoot the Son of God. And essentially what he's saying is you can disgrace and devalue him by turning away. It's a disgrace uh, to him. If you reject his greatest work, you're disgracing God. Uh, And if you devalue him, By devaluing what he did, you're insulting God. You're insulting the spirit of grace. The second is considering as unclean the blood of the covenant. In going back, they would be considering Jesus' blood as no greater than the blood of those sacrifices. If they wanted to go from from Christianity back to Judaism, back to the, the Levitical sacrifices, they're saying, you know what? The blood of Jesus has no greater value than that. Again, it's an insult to God. And he's being very clear. He's putting the hammer down with these people. And we can glean the seriousness of God and of God's covenant through it. The third thing he says is insulting the spirit of grace. The spirit's main job, as we know, is to reveal Christ to us. When Jesus in the Gospel of John, he says the Holy Spirit will do three things. He'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment And he says, and he will guide you into all truth. In other words, you're not going to understand this without the Holy Spirit giving you, prompting you, giving you understanding, giving you a spiritual eyes. That's why we pray, why I pray all the time. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that understand, because these things are spiritually discerned. 
And, and you're insulting the spirit of grace if you turn away from that. It's what the writer's saying. Uh, it's, it's, it's not going to make sense. The ministry of the spirit is clear. He's, he's going to guide you into all truth. He's, he's going to convict. He's going to guide you into truth. And he says he'll bear witness of me. That's what Jesus himself said, prophesying of, of the coming of the Holy Spirit into the lives of believers. And he's saying, you're insulting God. You're insulting the Spirit's work if you turn your back on him. How would that look in practical ways? Essentially, it, it might be something like this. I hear what you're saying. I disagree, God. I'm going my own way. Jesus is not the way. He's not the Son of God, and He hasn't done anything for me, nor do I want Him to. That's the mindset of an apostate. It's not the mindset of a believer, of a true believer, but that is the mindset of an apostate. And it may not be stated as such. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, I think I'll be an apostate Christian today. But it's a matter of the heart, isn't it? Because that's where God meets us. Remember, we've looked at Judaism had all these externals, all these big, beautiful things, the, the, the delight to the senses that we've talked about in pa- past chapters here in Hebrews. And, and what, what he says, especially when it gets to that part in Jeremiah 31, he says, wait, I'm going to take all of that, I'm going to put it, I'm going to write it on your heart. And I'm going to take this whole external thing with all of these shadows that pointed to the future reality, the greater reality, and I'm going to put that on the inside. He's saying, if you turn from Christ, you're turning from that. And that is an insult to God himself. So the question is, should I take, should God take offense if this is the attitude of the heart? I mean, the answer, of course, is yes. It would be obvious that, yes, of course, this is, you're offending God. You're offending the work, the greatest work that's ever been done, which is Jesus going to that cross to take my sin, to take your sin, and, and to die in our place. And then when he rose to give us power to live, to turn away from that, to go back to a system, is what the writer's saying, to turn away from that, to go live out in the world, is ridiculous. It's an offense to God. So what's the bottom line? And essentially it's this, to reject Christ after understanding who he is and what he's done brings unimaginable judgment. I'll say it again, unimaginable judgment. Because God is a just God. You gotta understand, yes, he wants to pull you in. He wants to pursue fellowship. He wants to build a relationship. He wants to put his very life in your heart. And he's saying, if you turn away from that, you bring judgment. This is a serious, severe warning. And, 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 and again, it's not said to put anybody in a head trip. It's not said to guilt you. But you got to understand, because God is holy, because he is infinitely pure as relates to infinity, and we are not. We are either covered by the blood of his son, or we're not. And if we're not... The only thing that remains is judgment. That's why he warns. He's warning because he loves these people. He wants to see them go forward. He doesn't want to see them go back. One of the hardest things for me as a pastor has been when I've seen people go out and just rot. I've seen people over the years, I've seen a few people go out and just forsake. I I think of one person that I see in social media just out there 
just living for the world and there's no thought of Christ whatsoever. And it was a person that I saw being greatly used at one time. It grieves my heart. This guy's heart is grieved as he's writing to these people. He's saying, no, 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 no. It's not the answer. I know it's hard. Hang in there. Hold fast. Draw near. Stay together with the other people that you know because you're going to draw strength and nourishment and, 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 and encouragement from them. That's his point in this. Verse 34, we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. In Deuteronomy 32, uh, we see that God is a God of retribution. He is a retributive God. It's part of who he is. Retributive wrath is, it's it's not only a doctrine, it's a reality. And when he says that, the writer is saying, look, Moses' law said that somebody's gonna, that if they reject the, the law of Moses, they're gonna die. How much more if you reject the covenant of grace? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. Jesus told us to forgive our enemies, right? But if a person turns from him and remains in that place, he does not forgive them. That's what's being said here. The point is the opportunity to repent, to change your mind about God, is now. It's it's something that we can't afford to wait. We can't afford to get wrong. And again, if you are walking with the Lord, I am not here to call that into question. I don't believe God's, God's word calls that into question. If you don't know the Lord, or perhaps the Holy Spirit is convicting that you've been playing games with him, or that you're somehow, I don't know. I don't know what's going on in, in people's lives, but I do know this, that God is faithful. And he, he would never send someone to hell. He would never commit someone to that place without them being warned and that warning being heeded. Uh, the point is, is that the reason he says in verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The reason people are not fearful is because they have their, well, my God would never commit someone to hell. Well, your God really doesn't count. You have God in your back pocket, a God of your, that's idolatry. That's not the God of the Bible. I remember when I was raising my kids, have you ever sat, and and I'm just going to paint a little picture, kind of generically, but have you ever sat at a restaurant, and and let's say that there's a mom or a dad at the table next to you, and there's some kids there, and you hear, if you do that one more time, I'm going to spank you. And, And then you're sitting there a few minutes later, it's like, okay, Buster, don't you push me. Or you're, you're gonna get it. And, and then a few minutes later, it's like, I've told you! And it's like, does that kid take that warning seriously? Really? No. Who's training who at that point? <laughs> this is my question. My kids knew, and, and it wasn't, I mean, great relationship with them and all that, and, and loving, and yet they also knew that if I warned them, they better pay attention. Because it's not a false warning. I'm not going to keep warning them. I, I think that that devalues the strength of, of, of what's coming. And so if I warn them, guys, knock it off. Stop arguing or whatever it is that's going on. That if they didn't, that warning was going to get 
converted into an act, and I was going to discipline them. And so they knew that if they got a warning, that they took it to heart. I think that that's what the writer's wanting to do here is, look, take this to heart. God is not going to keep telling you. He's telling you, look, yeah, he'll bear with you through your whole life. And if you're worried about this in your life, if you even have a thought of being worried about becoming apostate, you're good. Because that's we're talking about the opposite mindset here. Somebody that's not worried about it. Somebody that has, thinks it's no big deal. But but in the same way, he, he, he says it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And how much more? If my, my kids knew it was a fearful thing to fall in the hands of their living dad, then, you know, how much more? Uh, God is not tame. Understand that. That doesn't mean, I'm not trying to imply that he's some wild man or some wild creature or being. But he is not tame. We cannot tame him. If we pull away from his love, we will bear his wrath. And that's how it is. So going on here, since Jesus gives us these, let us do these because there is a warning. But you are better than this. Verse 32, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated... You endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. This is a window into life in the first century. Christianity, in in the year 50, Christianity was condemned by the government. In 64, it became a capital crime uh, to, to proclaim Christ. It was dangerous. These people, and if, if you were convicted of a capital crime, the government took your house. All right, it didn't matter if there were 15 other people living there because they lived in larger expanded families in those days, but uh, they would take your house. So it, what he's saying here is, is your family doesn't have a home. Where would you stay? You would go to a brother or sister in Christ and you would be sharing with those who were so treated. That's what he's talking about here. What he's saying is that you have consequences to your standing up for Christ, and yet you've got to realize something. It's not about that. It's worth the struggle. Hang in there. Hold on. Draw near. Hold fast. Group together. Uh, verses 34 through 36, he says, for, in verse 34, he says, For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, the seizure of your property, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. He's going to revisit this theme in chapter 11 when he talks about faith. But essentially what he's saying is, you know what? You lost your property here. You've got some really good real estate there. Hold on. It's coming. I want to encourage you. So he's shifted gears here. And so he's saying, you know, uh, yeah, there's a warning. Yeah, since you're doing this, uh, since God has done this, you're doing this. And there's a warning, but I, I, I think better of you on this. And so now he's switched gears from warning to encouraging them and telling them, again, exhorting them to hold on and to, to, to persevere through the trials that they're going through. He says, and by the way, he said, you had compassion on me and my chains. I always refer to the writer of Hebrews as the writer because nobody knows who wrote it. I'm not saying it was the Apostle Paul. even though he was in chains uh, and wrote a lot of letters while he was in chains. 
and he had long sentences like this. Uh, I, I have a personal opinion about the writer of this, but we will leave him anonymous because God has chosen to leave him anonymous. However, when I see that, that part on the chains. I think Charlie, when he was here a couple of weeks ago, mentioned that when I got to this point that he knew I was going to say that. So if you're watching Charlie, then yeah, okay. Anyway, he says, verse 35, therefore, therefore, so remember, when you see a therefore, what's it? Therefore, he's referring to what's just been said. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. This is the most important line in this entire chapter, folks. Do not cast away your confidence. In other words, it's implying that you have had confidence in Christ. Don't go backwards. Don't cast it away. Understand that even though you're going through stuff, I know some of you are going through some some serious trials. I don't know what's going on in many of your lives, but we do go through them. I've said before, if you're not going through a trial, you've either just come out of one or you're about to go into one because this life has lots of tribulation. In the world, you will have tribulation. That's what the Bible says. He's saying, take courage. Don't throw away your confidence in the middle of that pressing. When your life gets pressed in, Understand, God is doing something. He's working. He will use that for his glory. And he says, I want you to hold on to identify that he may be using that as a tool to draw you closer, to mature you, to grow you in some way. He's not doing it because he's mad at you, because his anger has passed over you if you belong to Christ. So he's essentially exhorting these guys to hold the course. And to exhort means to strongly encourage. So verse 36, we're actually going to finish this. For you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. I love that. This, folks, this is one of my life verses. Hebrews 10.36, if you've known me for long, you've heard me say it. He says, for you have need of endurance. Some versions say patience. I I like endurance because it implies I'm going through some stuff now and I need to endure it. That after you've done the will of God, what's the will of God? Hold on. Draw near. Stick together. To wait for what's been promised or that you may receive the promise. Um. It's a glorious passage, and it fits. If you're going through a trial this morning, I would encourage you, adopt this as your own. This was shared with me. I was going, I went through a particular trial many years that lasted about six years. And, and, and my life was getting pressed in, and, and uh, it was not fun. And I remember uh, my spiritual dad, uh, my pastor Bob, shared this with me early on. And, and there were times where I felt like all I have, Lord, is this verse. All I have is the desire to, to hold on, to endure this. And I want to do your will in the midst of this because I want to receive what you promised. And that's eternity with him. What better way to live our lives? Even when we're going through stuff, as these people are going through stuff, what do we, how do we apply that to our lives? When we go through stuff, He's saying the same response comes into play. So the writer now quotes Habakkuk chapter 2 in verses 37 and 38. He says, 
Yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Uh, again, it's part of this encouragement. That's part of what are you waiting for? What's the promise? This is the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So connecting that, do you have need of endurance that after you've done the will of God, that you may receive the promise? He's coming. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I come, I will take you to that place. And it's a wonderful promise. In other words, hold on. It's coming. Life gets tough. And you may be in a joyful place in your life. And if you are, praise God. Put this in your spiritual bank account to draw out when you need it. Not if, but when those times come. Because it does happen in our lives. We go through things. Again, he warns, he's quoting here Habakkuk, and he says, the just shall live by faith. In other words, do you really believe this stuff? Because if you do, you have one responsibility. Stay close. Stay close. Let him do the work that he wants to do in you and through you. And he warns again from the Old Testament, if anybody draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. These people were fearful. They were stressed. The Lord hadn't returned, and he's just wanting to give them some encouragement. Yes, there's a warning in the midst of this encouragement. And yet, as we wrap up, uh, we'll go back, we'll read this again. Since Jesus gives us these, he's given us entrance into the the very presence of God, and he's he's our advocate. Let us do these. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us cling together. Because there's a warning. Don't go backwards. He says, but you're better than this. We've just looked at that. He's saying, no, no, look at what you're going through. There's a, there's a point to all that you're, you're going through as a Christian. Don't walk away now. My goodness, I moved out of the house when I was 17. I Actually, I went on vacation. I had an old 59 Chevy. It looked like an aircraft carrier. The thing was huge. Anyway, I got in my car in Southern California where I grew up, and I drove all the way to Washington State. And I was had just gotten out of school. I was a junior in high school. And I had come up in a, in a very violent background. With my, my stepfather was evil. And I mean violence. I, I went to bed many nights growing up, not knowing if he was going to kill me in the middle of the night. And, 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 and God's healed that to, to his glory. And yet at that time, it was like, I, it was the first time I had a chance to spread my wings. And I spread them and I flew away and I didn't come back. I enrolled in high school uh, up in Fife, Washington, and, and and I thought, why would I go all the way through? Because I had people in my life saying, you need to go to work, you need to find a job, you need to da-da-da. Just don't worry about going back to high school and all that. And I was like, well, why would I want to go all this way? I've been in school for 12 years. Why would I just cash it in and not get that diploma when I've got eight or nine more months of school to do it? essentially what he's in a bigger way what he's saying here you've put in this time you've invested in this relationship you have this relationship with christ why would you go through all that you've gone through and then walk away and that's the question that came to me as a young man i ended up getting three part-time jobs and rented a house in a really bad neighborhood but it was better than where i came from and finished high school because i I couldn't stomach the thought of walking away 
And again, that's part. And what I would have suffered is I would have been able, I wouldn't have been able to go and fill out job applications and have them say, are you a high school graduate? I would have put, "Mm, uh, no. And that would have hurt me. How much more in spiritual things does that count for us? So he says, since Jesus gives us these, let us do these because there's a warning. But you're better than this. And we have made our choice. Verse 39. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition. Perdition is the state of being damned. But of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So when he says we, he says, I'm believing better of you. And together, haven't we made made a better choice than this? Uh, so the question then becomes, as we wrap up this chapter, can a Christian lose their salvation? Oh, you guys know my answer to that. Don't ask me about your eternal security. As for me, I am absolutely secure eternally. The issue is not can they, the issue is will they. In John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. The question is, do you hear his voice? Do you belong to him? Four questions as we wrap up. The first is, do real Christians hear Jesus' voice and obey him? The answer is yes. By his spirit, through his word. That's how he does it. He speaks into the lives of his people. The second is this, from verse 37, does Jesus warn them? According to this passage, absolutely. He says, don't cast away your confidence. That's a warning. It's a warning. Don't walk away. It's not going to go well for you. These are eternal stakes. The third question is, will they, his sheep, take his warning seriously? Like I said, the mindset that says, eh, just another Sunday message. Eh, can't wait to find out what's for lunch. Okay, maybe you're thinking that. Doesn't mean you're apostate. (laughs) The point is, the point is, yeah, if you belong to him, you're going to take his warning seriously. The fourth is, are you secure in his love? If you belong to him, absolutely. Absolutely. You're secure in his love. Why? Because we don't do what he warns against. I have no plans to walk away. This is a serious warning. The point, it's the same as in chapter 6, folks. If you never live your life where this is a question, you got nothing to worry about. Why would I want to live my life on a question mark? Why would I want to have, in my history, I was professing Christ and I walked away? Uh, I'll tell you, I went through a period of time as a Christian where I had a lean soul. And what I mean by that is the things of God just began to fade. I had removed myself from fellowship. This is early on in my Christian life. And, and, and I began to cool off. 
And the thing that frightened me was I knew this passage. And I thought about it. I thought, you know what that would look like in my life if God pulled back from me? And essentially said, you want this life? You can have it. Is I would wake up one morning and just feel better. Because the Spirit of God was striving with me. And he was. And so that became proof that I just needed to make some adjustments in my life and to get back into fellowship. I'd moved in and all of that, and I was just being lazy. But the point is, is that if, if that's a question, if that's, or if that's a concern in your life, you're not in the, the mindset that he's talking about. We take these warnings seriously. But if you're in a, of a mind that you're never going to live your life to where this is questionable, to where you're living your life on a question mark, you don't have to worry about it. I don't worry about it. I really don't. I sincerely don't. You don't need to worry about it if that's where your life is centered. If Jesus is not your life, if he is not first place in your heart, concern yourself with drawing close. Draw near. Hold fast. Group together. That's the advice that he gives. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for passages like this where we see, Lord, that you are just so sober-minded and serious with us, and yet you bring great encouragement to us through it.